As you turn to Daniel chapter 9, we look at our message tonight. How does prophecy work? Prophecy is this amazing gift that a supernatural, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present at once God gives as a gift to his people to see around the corner what's coming to a neighborhood near you. And this is what prophecy is, is the Lord speaking, he dwells outside of time. God's not a person with a lot of time on his hands. He actually dwells out of the space-time continuum. And so he can see the past, the present, and the future. And he can speak to those uh, issues with such accuracy. It is a very, very unique dimension that separates Judeo-Christianity from any other religion on the planet. Because when the Bible says this is going to happen and then it's fulfilled, it says this is going to happen and then it's fulfilled over and over and over. So much so that those who want to basically uh, rob the, the Bible and the God we serve of power, they say, oh, these things were manipulated. These things were written after the events. Not so. Don't let anybody ever kind of blow you that smoke and try to uh, really conflate or confuse or make a foggy issue. The God we serve is able to speak to future events with absolute authority. And in this passage of scripture is probably one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible regarding the Lord Jesus and the day that he shows up the literal day that he shows up in Jerusalem at the triumphant entry when they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it is told or declared 483 years before it actually happens, down to the day. That's why it's one of those iconic prophecies of such incredible accuracy. Now in this passage of scripture, I'm gonna mention Five prophecies. Now, four of them have been fulfilled. This gives us the confidence that God can do this. He's done it in the past, but there's tons of prophecies out in front of us, right? And so if he is this accurate with the past, we can look to the future with absolute confidence about the future. And in these last couple of years, we've been wondering about the future, right? What's going to happen in this world? Everybody wants to know about the future. Why does Psychic 900 hotlines work? Right? Because people want to know, right? They go and they get their palm read. They go see tarot card readers. They go to gypsies. They go to crystal balls. They go to seances. Even back when I was in high school, you know, at a, at a party, you know, my friends were having this seance and summoning spirits and, and uh, demonic spirits to tell them about the future. And we were in high school. I, I hadn't been to church much, but I'm like, I don't want nothing to do with that. Whatever the darkness is, whoever's going to be talking in that meeting, I don't want to hear from them. Because you see, we live in a world that is not only physical, but there is a spiritual world that is very real. And so Daniel was one of those guys that God gifted with the ability to understand dreams, that God spoke to him in radical ways. And this prophecy specifically, the Lord doesn't even bother with a dream. He doesn't even bother with a vision. He has Gabriel, the angel, show up and download this incredible message, which is uh, really mind-blowing. Gabriel seems to have a special mission. If a prophecy has something to do with Jesus, he likes to show up and tell you about it. He's the one that showed up and told Mary what was going on. He is the one that is bringing the message about who Jesus is. Hey, let's stand for a minute. We're going to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. 
And then we're going to drop down to verse 20 and read the rest of the chapter. It says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now drop down to verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, which would be three in the afternoon. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, I com- I was, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you, get this, this is the message from the angel, from God, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until Jesus shows up, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah, the Lord Jesus, shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm, this is that prince that is coming, the Antichrist, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Father, we ask in this incredible promise about future things that you have imparted to us, your people, just as you told Daniel, Lord, you tell us that we are greatly beloved. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for communicating with us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would make these things alive and real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How prophecy works, all of us want to know, how much did these prophets who were getting these downloads from the Lord and they were writing it, how much did they comprehend about the things they were actually writing? Now, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He's saying all of these prophecies confirmed, which you do well, to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Man, God turns on the light with prophecy for his people so we know what is coming down the road. And it tells us in verse 21 of chapter 1, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These men of God who are walking with him in fellowship, the Lord moves upon them 
And the Spirit moves upon them and motivates them to write these prophecies. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these different prophecies. And as he does, oftentimes they did not see the full picture because they could not see the hindsight. It was all yet in front of them. So even for them, the message that God was giving them, that they were communicating and given to the people, is even a mysterious thing to the prophets themselves. It wasn't their own thoughts. It wasn't their own words. The Holy Spirit moved upon them and spoke through them, whether it's prophecy from the Apostle Paul or prophecies uh, from John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. It was all downloaded by the Spirit of God to their hearts as they wrote it out. Now, this first prophecy that we look at is a 70-year prophecy that's almost ready to be fulfilled in Daniel's life. That's why it was so important, right? Daniel, as a young man, was taken away captive by the Babylonians as a teenager in 605 B.C. Now, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem three times. And the three times that he attacked, every time he took people, he took captives, he, he took all of the implements that were in the temple. But Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they were all taken in the first uh, POW, basically prisoners of war and taken back to Babylon. So when he's reading here in chapters uh, 9, verses 1 and 2, it says that in the middle here, Daniel understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the prophet through Jeremiah the prophet. So he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He's reading a prophet himself. Daniel's a prophet, but he's reading the other prophets. Daniel's a prophet that reads his own Bible, right? Because he wants to know these things. So as he's reading Jeremiah, he's reminded of this incredible prophecy that Jeremiah said when God took them away. And no doubt Daniel's hoping, well, does that mean in 605? Does that mean in uh, 586? When, when did the 70-year clock tick? Because Daniel's now is old. He's like 80 or 90. 90 years old, and he's wanting to get out of Dodge. He's been there his whole life waiting to go back to Jerusalem. So here he is, and it's now in the first year of Darius, we know the year that it is. It has been 66 years, so when Daniel thinks about this, he goes, man, I, I better get prayed up. We got four years, and we're getting out of here. We're getting out of Babylon. For this is the promise that it tells us in Jeremiah, it says it also in chapter 25, but in Jeremiah 29, 10, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. This was God's promise to the children of Israel. It's now been 66 years since that was written. Daniel starts praying about it, and that is exactly what happens. And in the process of these, in these next four years, when this is fulfilled, it also then triggers and fulfills another prophecy that was made 220 years before that with a guy by a specific name. His name was Cyrus. You see, the second prophecy that's fulfilled, this 200-year prophecy, we'll see in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Now, Cyrus is the king of the Persians. And in his first year, he gives a command because he sees, he's shown, supposedly the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that um, in his antiquities, he relates that when Cyrus came across his name mentioned in this place, 
in Isaiah, years before he lived, he was seized by a holy desire to fulfill what was written of him. Now, I should back up, I guess. The verse that I should have read first was Isaiah 44, which the Lord calls him by name 220 years before he shows up. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 220 years ago, the Lord calling, you know, there's going to be a president elected in 2016. His name's Donald, right? In 220 years, and then you read that, you go, I think I'm going to run for president, right? I got this prophecy. Because think about it, 220 years takes us back to 1802. Imagine a prophecy in 1802 that now is coming to pass. The Lord said of this through Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, now at this point when Isaiah wrote this, who's Cyrus? Nobody knows who Cyrus is. They have no clue because it's 220 years before he shows up. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now this is so exciting to me because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. When I hear God's word and I see his track record, it fills me with courage and faith about the future, right? Because it's easy to get afraid. It's easy to become anxious. It's easy to think, oh no, what's gonna happen in this world that seems like the wheels are coming off? But realize the Lord sees all of these things in advance. He's doing a work through their period of time and they had a terrible a national crisis where God judged the entire nation of Israel and he took them to Babylon. A hundred years before that, he judged the northern ten tribes by the, the kingdom of Assyria and they took them captive. And then the Babylonians a hundred years later take Judah captive. I mean, they've had a tough run for 170 years. But in this passage, Daniel goes, oh, it's time for God to bring us all home, to bring us all back to Jerusalem, to bring us back to the land of Israel. And so this is the prophecy that once Cyrus, in power, first year of king, as a king, it says this in 2 Chronicles 36, 22, and 23, what Cyrus did. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proper proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to, how did he command him? He commanded him in Isaiah 44 and 45, those chapters. All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God has given to me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah who is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. He said, all you Jews that are captives, you've been POWs for 70 years, uh, whoever wants to, it's, he doesn't demand it. He just gives the invitation and he sets them free. He says, go home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, this is a different command that's gonna come some 50 years later to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which Nehemiah is gonna come do with a different command from a king, Artaxerxes, which is another prophecy in this passage of scripture. But Cyrus, the cool thing about the Bible is that every time an archeologist puts his spade in the dirt, he proves the Bible true. 
over and over and over again. This uh, picture right here is the, called, it is the cylinder of Cyrus, this king of Persia. It's, uh, it looks big in the picture, but it's actually only nine inches by about four inches in diameter, but it's covered with writing. In, in the writing, this archaeologist discovered it in 1879 when they were digging in ancient Babylon. This is where they found this cylinder of Cyrus. And on it, it says, uh, it was created following the Persian conquest of Babylon in 539 BC by Cyrus. The text on the cylinder extols Cyrus as a benefactor, so he's a legit king in history, uh, as a benefactor of the citizens of Babylon who improved their lives repatriating. This is the part that he did this for many nations, but it doesn't specifically say uh, the, the Jews and Jerusalem, but he did this in a bigger way, it appears, even to other peoples. For it says, he repatriated displaced people and restored temples and cult sanctuaries across Mesopotamia and elsewhere in the region. That's what the cylinder says. It is now in the British Museum, so if you're just hanging out in London and you want to go see this uh, cylinder of Cyrus, you can see it today. Modern day substantiation for what the scriptures declare. So we have a fulfillment of a 70-year prophecy. Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah and goes, man, it's almost 70 years. I'm going to start praying. We're going to get out of here. And then Cyrus comes on the scene and it's a 220-year fulfillment of prophecy, but now is the mind-blowing prophecy because it reaches out 483 years. So this one is now given. And once again, the rehearsal of verses 20 through 23 are incredible because Gabriel says, hey, Daniel, you're greatly beloved. I've come to tell you what's going on. I've come to tell you what's gonna happen in the future and it's gonna blow your mind. And he tells him that he breaks it down this way. In verse 24, we see it's all about Jesus. It's the Messiah's mission. In verse 25, it's Messiah's coming. In verse 26, it's Messiah's sacrifice. And as we get to verse 27, it's about the Antichrist showing up on the scene to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This is the most far-reaching, specific prophecy down to the day. Now check it out you got to track with me. Now, you might have to think a little bit tonight. So if you had a long day and you start snoozing here, this is not a college class, but it does require your attention or you will not be following or tracking, okay? For some, they go, oh, prophecy, what's the big deal? Man, if prophecy can fill you with courage and strength about the future, prophecy fulfilled in the past is very powerful because you just point to the future because this is the same God He's got the 411. He's going to tell you what's going on. So it says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for my people, the Jews, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. And this is what the mission of Messiah is. He's to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. To anoint, the word for anointing or the anointed one is Messiah. So this is the holy one, the Messiah, the holy one is gonna show up. And what is Jesus gonna do? He's gonna finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting light, righteousness, and that's what he did on the cross. When Jesus showed up and died on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sins. 
So these 70 weeks that are determined for the people of Israel. Now he's going to break it down. Now, 70 weeks, you, you just notice that 70 years was their discipline, right? How do you give, how do you take a nation to the woodshed? You bring a foreign nation in and you displace those people and you give them a spanking or discipline for 70 years, then you send them back. Now it is 70 weeks. Now the 70 weeks are 77 year periods of time. In biblical terminology, or even in math, it's called a heptad. So he's dealing with the children of Israel in seven-year periods of time. That's what the 70 weeks are. You have to break it down. It's not weeks because it's literal years. You can, uh, those who would try to make it sound that it's days, it's it, none of that works. What he's talking about, in prophecy, you have oftentimes enigma or complicated language to try to sort through what is being said. So these 70 weeks are determined, and this is how it's going to work. This is how the 70 weeks break down. It says in verse 25, know therefore and understand. Now he wants Daniel to know this, but he wants you to know this too, that you would know and understand this, that from the going forth, get this, there's a time, the clock, you know, it's like a stopwatch, hit the button. From the uh, going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Artaxerxes is going to do that in his 20th year on the first of Nisan, as we'll see in a moment, until Messiah the Prince, till their Messiah shows up in Jerusalem, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, it has seven weeks, that's a 49-year period of time, that in the 70 weeks, that 49 years is the time that they rebuild their, uh, the temple has been rebuilt, and now the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt in that period of time. So for the first seven weeks or 49 years, and then add to that the other 62 weeks. So the total is 69 weeks or 483 years. So when that happens, in this, after the 62 weeks or the 490 years, it says in verse 26, the Messiah's sacrifice. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Who is Jesus crucified for? For himself? For us, right? Not for himself, for us. So he was cut off so that we could be forgiven, our iniquities can be washed away, and to deal with the transgression. Once and for all, one sacrifice, because you see for the Jews, they offered sacrifices daily to only cover sin. It couldn't remove sin. So when the sacrifice came once and for all, you never have to kill another animal again. Because Jesus, once and for all, removes our sin through faith in him. So, let's check this out. This is a mystery. Now, the Jews missed this. Now, they were Bible students. They, they knew every jot and tittle, these scribes and these Pharisees and studying the scriptures, but they totally missed this. As a matter of fact, for another 1,800 years after Jesus' crucifixion, people missed this. And it wasn't until somebody leaned into this and really wanted to figure it out, a Christian by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, he was a detective who was the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard in England, and he uh, lived from 1841 to 1918, and he wrote a number of books. But this book, The Coming Prince, was his investigation into this prophecy, and he has unpacked it from that point 
every Bible teacher worth his salt when it comes to this passage leans into what Sir Robert Anderson learned. Scotland Yard detective goes to work for the people of God. He's a wonderful Christian. And I'm gonna make it simple for you. And I have a uh, page of his worksheet, which is much more complicated. But for our sake tonight, I can't really take you there. I just have to simplify it. So the 483 years have to be converted from 360 days a year. The Babylonian calendar, the ancient calendar was in 360 days a year, not 365 and a quarter, they would go a period of time, then they would have a leap month to kind of make up for the difference in ancient times. But because we have lunar calendars and we can back up all the way to that time, these 483 years, once the math is done and it's converted to our Julian calendar, it's all put together, it comes to 173,880 days. That's the easiest way to extrapolate. Now think about that for a moment. From the time that uh, Artaxerxes, and this is when that happened, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given on the first day of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes in our calendar system, the Julian calendar, that date is March 14th, 445 BC, and this is what Nehemiah tells us. It gives us the starting point, boom, the clock started. You now have 173,880 days till Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he's worshiped as the Messiah, the coming king. Now this type of prophecy is so specific that when Jesus showed up, now the exact day Jesus, from this prophecy, now if that 173,880 days ended up in some kind of wild spot that's not even close to the historical date, we'd go, oh, that's, that's the wrong date. That's the wrong math. But what does it turn out to be? The exact day of Jesus' triumphant entry, the week before his cruci- of his crucifixion, into Jerusalem as April 6th, AD 32. This number is so mind-blowing to people that um, people that, our skeptics of the Bible are always trying to disprove the Bible, cannot wrap their mind around this. Obviously, somebody wrote it later. Like there's a later Daniel that after all these things, no. Even Sir Robert Anderson didn't even figure this out mathematically as a good investigator until the 1800s. So Jesus, when he comes to town that day of the triumphant entry, you remember what he said? He was very specific. It says in Luke 19.42, If you had known, he says to the Jews, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day. What day was he talking about? 173,880 days. Today, the prophecy is fulfilled. And they totally missed it. That passage that we love to share out of context in a sense, but it is in this context says in Psalm 118.24, this is the day which the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. What day? This day, 173,880 days. The day that Jesus came, this is the day we're gonna rejoice and be glad in it because the Messiah, the Prince, has finally come. From the time of Nehemiah getting the command to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 445 BC, March 14th, until this date, April 6th, 32 AD. Now, Sir Robert Anderson's calculations are, uh, 
You know, in, in math class, you can have the answer, but you have to show all your homework, like all your scratch paper. So I, I have his other work, but I, I couldn't belabor the point with you guys to get through it, where he has to add leap years, and he, he, he goes through this uh, very intense experience. So that being said, that should just totally blow our minds. But on top of that, connected to the 70 weeks, what, what is also going to happen, he gives us an addendum, which then is another 38 years later in verse 26. He says, and the people of the prince who is to come. So the people of the prince. So the Romans were in charge of the Holy Land when Jesus was crucified. And the prince who is to come is a future prince. This is a prophecy about a, a political leader that's going to show up in the last days, still out in front of us. That's how far reaching this prophecy is. But the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Jesus told the disciples, you remember they're walking through the temple courts one day, and they, they were looking at these ginormous stones. And if you've been to Israel and you look at the retaining wall, especially if you go down in the rabbinical tunnels, I mean, some of these stones are, you know, 600 tons. They're massive stones. And the disciples were telling Jesus, looking at the costly stones. They're not talking about rubies or diamonds. No, they're talking about these massive uh, fashion stones. And they said, look at this, Jesus. And he said, not one of these stones are going to be left upon another. They had to look at him and go, what are you talking about? They've, Herod's temple had been worked on for 46 years. It's, it's this amazing marvel. But when the people of the prince, who was the Romans, showed up at Jerusalem because of the rebellion with Vespasian, Titus Vespasian in AD 70, and Josephus, the historian, was there, according to uh, documents, and he talks about them, you know, they, they have these incredible um, catapults that launch these great big stones like this. Josephus talks about a story that a guy's standing up on the wall of Jerusalem and they shoot this stone with a catapult and it just decapitates him. It just takes his head right off. A million Jews were trapped in there. People began to eat their own children. They were starving to death. It was brutal. And the Romans were so angry when they finally got inside, even though Titus Vespasian, the general, told them, do not harm the temple because it's covered in gold. They were so angry, somebody threw a torch into the temple and the temple melted and the gold melted down into the cracks of all these ginormous stones. So what did they do? They pried with lavers and a whole army to pry these stones off. And when you go to Jerusalem, if you go down below, I've sat on these stones that they shoved over the side because they had to get the gold out of the cracks. Why was one stone not left upon another? Because the gold had melted down in them and they had to tear them apart to get the gold specifically thing after thing after thing is fulfilled. And here, Gabriel tells Daniel, he says, you know what? This is a prophecy that's not 483 years. This is 521 years. This is the fourth prophecy in this short passage. 521 years to 70 AD. Now, this is the place that it even gets more mind-blowing and more Shall we say relevant for you, relevant for me? Because the next prophecy is in our future. So all this stuff, you go, I hate history. I'm zoning out. I'm thinking of my grocery list. I, 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 I don't like history. And, but well, how about the future? You interested in the future? 
Do you want to know what's going to happen politically in the world with everything that's going on in the world? Do you know where it's all going to come together, especially in the land of Israel? For this fifth prophecy is I've just put a 2,473-year prophecy and still counting because it's not fulfilled. That's where we're at from this prophecy that Gabriel gave to Daniel back in the day. That's how far away it was and how far we've come. For he says this in verse 27, then he shall confirm, who is this? The people of the prince. This political leader is going to rise up in a European group of nations. So the old Roman, uh, the Roman empire was European. And this individual is gonna rise from that and he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week pertaining to Israel, pertaining to the nation of Israel, pertaining to Jerusalem, more specifically pertaining to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is what the Jews desperately want to rebuild a temple. They wanna rebuild the temple. But in 1967, when they got control from the Muslims of Jerusalem to keep world peace because they're surrounded by Muslim enemies, the Jews made a concession and they said, you, because most of them are secular Jews, they said, we're going to let you Muslims run the Temple Mount, which is about 18 acres and the Dome of the Rock, if you ever see the picture of Jerusalem with the Dome of the Rock with the gold top, that is the Muslims' third most holy site after Mecca and Medina because from the Dome of the Rock, supposedly, Muhammad on his horse from this rock leapt into the heavens. So the Dome of the Rock, but not only the Dome of the Rock for worshiping, the Muslims control the Solomon's Temple Mount, but they also have the Al-Aqsa Mosque. 10,000 Jews meet five times a day for prayer on the Temple Mount of the Jews. You cannot go up the Temple Mount when you go to Jerusalem with a Bible. You may not write, read a Bible. You may not read a, a, a Torah or an Old Testament. You can't read any scriptures because the Muslims control the Temple Mount. So the Jews know, but they want. They want to rebuild the temple. So this coming prince is going to be able to make a covenant or a peace treaty. Have you observed anybody that has some gray hair along with me? You know, my, the first president I voted for was Ronald Reagan. Every president all the way through, they're always trying to bring peace to the Middle East, right? They're always trying to step in. It doesn't matter who they are. You can go down the list, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H. Bush, um, Bill Clinton, all the way through George Herbert, I mean, W. Bush, all of them want to bring peace to the Middle East. But nobody can ever bring peace to the Middle East because the number one issue is the Temple Mount. You see, the Jews give the concession to the Arab world, you control the Temple Mount so we can have peace. But you know, there's a place called the Temple Institute in Israel. As a matter of fact, four weeks ago, they had a big celebration at Ben Gurion Airport because they've been trying to breed the red heifer, which is a special red heifer for sacrifices for the Jewish people. And they brought the red heifer in on an airplane and they're, they're, they're taking it to the place. And there was this big Jewish celebration because they want to do it. They've been tra training priests. They have implements from, for the uh, temple that all the replicas to be able to get ready. They have garments that they've made for these priests. 
but they have no access. Now, whoever is able, and this is what the Jews say, even as far back as 1998, my first trip to Israel, the big signs all over buildings, all over Jerusalem, all over Tel Aviv, and the big sign said, the Messiah is coming. So I'm, I'm thinking, hey, Messiah, you missed it. He came. Right, he's going to come a second time, but you missed the first coming. But no, no, no. You Christians, they say, you think Messiah is the son of God. We believe he's a political leader. Any political leader that will bring us peace is our Messiah. So they are ready for a political leader. Jesus said, I have not come in my own name, and you didn't receive me. He came in his father's name, and the Jews rejected him. He said, one will come in his own name, and you're going to receive him. That is this political leader. This political leader is probably alive and well today, operating somewhere in the uh, echelons of European politics. We don't know where he is. Because we live in these last days, all the components have come together to be able to make the things that the Bible says can happen. So there's a political leader that's going to be able to sign a peace treaty with the Jews and the Muslims that say, you can rebuild your temple And as it says in Revelation chapter 11, there is going to be another temple, but leave the outer courts to the Gentiles, meaning somehow they build a wall so that there can be the temple and the Dome of the Rock does not have to be destroyed or the Al-Aqsa Mosque with this peace. This is what the future holds. So every time people start talking about a peace agreement in the Middle East, man, I'm tuning in and turning up the volume. Because when a political leader signs a peace treaty for seven years, Because did you notice there's 77-year periods of time? That's 483 years. Did you notice there's one seven-year period of time that has not been accounted for for the nation of Israel? We call it the Great Tribulation. The seven years of Great Tribulation. Because that is the consummation of this whole prophetic plan that God has put together for the nation of Israel. Look what Jesus says. And this is, you know, in this passage in verse... um, Uh, 27, it says, the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Everybody's like, well, what's the abomination that brings desolation? And then why did Jesus talk about it again in Matthew chapter 24? This is what Jesus declared in Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, do you think Jesus believed Daniel's prophecy? Absolutely. Standing in the holy place, the temple that's rebuilt, whoever reads and let him understand. And then he warns that they should flee out of Jerusalem at that moment. Down in verse 21, he says, for then there will be great tribulation, this seven-year period of time that is yet future, such as not has not been seen. Check this out. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no ever shall be. This is going to be the most horrendous tribulation planet earth has ever seen. Verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Unless the Lord reduced the period of time, containing it within the bookends of seven years, nobody would even survive. If you do the math in through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bold judgments of the book of Revelation, half the planet is killed. Half. So there's almost, there's seven and three quarters billion people right now on planet Earth. So let's just round it off to 8 billion. That would mean 4 billion people are dead in a seven-year period of time. Can you imagine the catastrophic judgment? And Jesus said, 
there will be great tribulation as the world has never seen. And he said uh, at the end, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. For the Jews' sake, it's, it's going to be shortened. Now, all those prophecies of the past, 70 years, Jeremiah's prophecy for their exile to Babylon, Babylon. 220 years, Cyrus giving a, a prophecy about Cyrus that's going to send the people back to rebuild the house of God. Then 483 years till Jesus comes riding on a donkey in his triumphant entry. 521 years to the Romans destroying Jerusalem and not one stone being left upon another of the Temple Mount. And now reaching out this far to this specific abomination of desolation. So what is it? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, Jesus said, when you see it, and the whole world, according to Revelation, the entire world is going to see it. We are the first generation, say, for the last 70 years, that have the ability to see anything around the world by satellite TV, right? So how does the whole world see it? Well, back in their day, you couldn't see it. But now, the whole world can see it all at once. And so Paul told us exactly what this man of sin, the son of perdition, is going to do. It says, and Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. There's going to be a major apostasy away from the things of God. And the man of sin is revealed. That's the Antichrist. And the son of perdition, another name for him, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he... This is what he does in the temple. So that he sits on as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist is going to, he's a political leader that gives the Jews permission to rebuild their temple. But at the middle of the seven years, right at three and a half year mark, he comes in, they've started their daily sacrifices. They're doing all that stuff. And he comes in and he goes, stop the daily sacrifices. Because just as Judas Iscariot, it says the night he betrayed Jesus, that and Satan entered him, and he left, and he went to betray Jesus. Just as Jesus is God incarnate, he's God in human flesh. The political leader in the future, the Antichrist, is going to be Satan in human flesh. And what has Satan always wanted? According to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he has always wanted to be worshipped. He's wanted to be worshipped. And in his pride, he said, I will be like the most high God. I will be. Five times he says, I'm going to be like God. But here, this guy comes in and says, I, I let you rebuild this temple. Now I want you to stop all the sacrifices. And he's going to sit down. And he's like, you're going to worship me now. This is what he wants. And Jesus said, that is the abomination of desolation. Daniel says, that is the abomination of desolation. The Jews that see that need to run to the hills because there's a persecution now that is going to be unloaded on them like the world has never seen. It's going to be make Germany and their uh, concentration camps of Dachau and Auschwitz and all of these that killed six million Jews look like nothing compared to the madness that this political leader is going to bring. But at first, everybody's going to hail him. They're going, oh, this guy, he's the best thing since sliced bread. Look at, he's a peacemaker. He's a schmoozer. He's shaking hands and kissing babies. He's the ultimate politician. And he produced, he's a, he's a uh, peace broker that could put together a treaty between Jews and Muslims that nobody, nobody has ever been able to. And when he does it, it's going to be for the last seven-year period of time. So all of that is to say, this incredible 
revealing of prophecy blows my mind to know what's in the future. You see, Jesus gave us a couple of other clues that make us pause and look at the situation of this generation. He said in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You see, in 1967, the Jews got control again of Jerusalem from the Arab world. They still let them have the Temple Mount, but they got control of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, when the time of the Gentiles, you see the gospel pretty much has went to the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years because the Jews, by and large, are rejecting it. Paul unpacks this also in Romans eleven twenty five. He says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Meaning that when God's finally done in this age of the church saving Gentiles, he's going to turn in that seven-year period of time, he's actually going to bring massive revival to the Jewish world. And Paul says, and all of Israel is going to be saved. Once they see they've, put, they've, they've uh, banked on the wrong guy, the political leader, this Antichrist that betrays them and says, worship me as God, and the, the veil is open, and they're like, oh, no, we were deceived. From that moment, there's massive revival among the Jews during this seven-year period of time. That's why people don't get it. Right now, for the last 2,000 years, mainly Gentiles are becoming Christians and very few Jews. In the seven-year period of time, all, all these Jews are going to be saved and very few Gentiles. That's going to reverse. Now, I believe in my eschatology personally that Christians that know Jesus are going to be raptured out right before the seven-year period of time because Paul tells the Thessalonians that God has not appointed us unto wrath. Now, that's good news. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you don't want to be here. You want to be reading, watching from the bleachers eating popcorn. You want nothing to do with what is coming to planet Earth, okay? And... There are others who say, well, that's just escapism. What if he doesn't come to the end of the, the seven-year period of time? Well, first of all, you just look at God's track record. You remember when he was going to destroy Sodom? And Abraham's interceding, he's praying, he's like, Lord, shall not the God of the earth be just and righteous? Why would you destroy the, the righteous with the wicked? And he says, if there's 50, you know, he, he's, he's a good bargainer. He's a good Jewish businessman goes from 50, 45, you know, all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, okay, if there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy Sodom. Unfortunately, there wasn't 10. There was only Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. And we know Lot, his wife, turned back, turned to a pillar of salt. So only three got out of Dodge. But what did the angel tell them? We cannot destroy and bring the judgment of God on the wicked until you, the righteous, get out of here. He rescued them before the judgment came. This is the very nature and character of God. We see it also in another Old Testament passage when here Noah tells it there's going to be a flood, right? And he builds a boat, and the whole world is wiped out. But right before Noah, there's this guy by the name of Enoch, which is a picture in the Old Testament of a raptured believer. It says, he walked with God and was not, for God took him to heaven. Now, that would be a cool walk, right? Going for a walk in the afternoon. God, you're so good. I'm talking to you. Lord. Hey, I love you so much. Just come to heaven right now. He doesn't die. There's only two men in the Bible that have never died. Enoch in Elijah. And these two individuals are a very unique set. Now, having said all that, you guys, why is God waiting so long? Have you ever wondered why Jesus hasn't come back? You're like, come on, Lord, let's get with it. As soon as I got saved and I knew there was this thing called the rapture, I'm like, let's go. I'm saved. And in my selfishness, I'm like, I'm all I care about, <laughs> right? 
But in the time that I've been saved for 38 years, a lot of people have gotten saved since then. So every day, more people come to Christ. And Peter tells us that this is why God is waiting. It says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. You might even be here, you don't have any heart for prophecy, and you're scoffing through this. It's all right, Peter called you out 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? I have a family member that says, you are slower than the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's her big, you know, uh, insult to those who are, when she's impatient with them. And even in that, that, that regard, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, for they are willfully, King James, ignorant. They willfully forget. Do you know what it means to willfully forget or to be willfully ignorant? Willfully, it means to be stupid on purpose. That I am choosing in my will to ignore that the one day there was a flood back in Noah's day and God did judge the world. But then he tells us why. He says in verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. God's heart of love, just as he told Daniel, he was greatly beloved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that every day, every hour he waits before these things unfold means more people coming into the, into the kingdom because he's not willing that any should perish. God's heart is never to rejoice in judgment. God's heart is to see those who had come to Christ. In Revelation 19.10, it says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All of these prophecies, even for the nation of Israel, is all about the coming king, not only the first time he came, but when he comes again in his glory and when he comes to take us home. The Bible ends with this prayer from John the Apostle. Even so, come Lord Jesus, amen. The last phrase of the Bible is to invite the Lord. You know every day that you say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you know every day you pray that, you're praying for the Lord's kingdom to come and for the Lord to come? For him to come and to help us in this life that we oftentimes are grieved over by what's going on. But our great hope is, God, I don't know what the future holds in many regards, but I know who, who holds the future. And as, soon, as long as I trust Jesus, he knows what's going to happen, and I'm going to be A-OK, Spanky. So will you. We can trust him with our futures. Let's pray, and the worship team will come up. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would strengthen us uh, through the truth of your word and by your spirit. Lord, we pray that as we see these things on the horizon, Lord, that we will be filled with faith. There's nothing for us to be afraid of because you have it under your control. And you're going to roll it out as you see fit. And we are safe under the shadow of your wings, Lord. Be our refuge. Be our strength. And fill us with your supernatural peace. Even so, Lord Jesus, we pray as your people, come. Set up your kingdom. Come take us home. We're excited to see you face to face, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.